I want to welcome you to our church, to Sovereign Hope. Beyond both of the elders being gone, uh, most of our deacons are in Uganda, and so that leaves it uh, a very unique opportunity for me to be able to kind of handle everything on my own. But we uh, last week we talked about worship. We talked about worship being um, just the essence of everything that we were created as, as worshipers. And we talked about the glory of God, and we're going to talk about that today. So if there's any kids that need to go ahead and go to the kids' class, I'm going to go ahead and teach, and we're going to... Uh, leave some time near the end because I'd like for us to continue an expression of worship by taking communion together. So if you're with us, I would like for you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're just going to look at the one passage. We're not going to be there today, but I'm going to try to connect this back to what Adam has been teaching us in the past already. Remember here in Genesis 12, we're talking about the Lord giving Abram promises. And here in this passage, I want to show you what Abram's response was, as we talked about last week. In verse 4, it says, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. So here in this passage, we hear and see that Abram is given revelation by God. And the very first thing that he does in response to God's revelation or his promises is what? He builds an altar. And so last week we talked about what is this idea of an altar? Why are people building them? How far back does it go? And we examined all the way back to the very first sacrifice that we saw that was brought. And who was that? Cain and Abel, right? And we saw from the very beginning that God emphasized that even in bringing sacrifices and this idea of altar and this idea of worship, it was all about the heart condition because Abel's sacrifice was accepted, but Cain's wasn't. So I'm going to pray for us as we go into this time, and then we're going to move right into part two today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your love and mercy. I thank you for your word. I thank you that as we saw last week, as in Romans 4 says, it says that Abraham increased in his faith in your promise, fully convinced that you were able to do what you promised as he gave glory to God. And as we tried to understand and wrap our minds around last week, Lord, we recognize that your glory is what we were all created for. To proclaim the excellencies and the beauties of your nature and your character is what we're all about. God, we recognize that though we were created as worshipers, there's something that's gone seriously wrong. We're broken people. But God, as we just sang about, Christ came And has recreated us in his image so that we can offer acceptable worship to you again. God, I pray that as we tackle this large subject, 
that we'd come to have opened eyes to see how important it is that we direct our acceptable worship to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week's summary sentence. Remember, Adam gives us summary sentences every week, which typically are very long, and mine in like manner are also. Uh, Last week when we said this, we said, when God made male and female, he created worshipers in his image for his glory and praise. And we unpacked what that meant. From the first Adam to us today, basically for all time, God's people worship him as they naturally respond in faith to his revelation and reflect his worth to the world. So just like in some ways the moon is created, it has a purpose, it reflects the light of the sun, it doesn't give off any light of itself, it's just there. But what it's doing as it's there is it's naturally reflecting what's shining on it. And so what we talked about is that we were created as natural outpourers. We worship all the time. And we'll talk about that in a second in more detail. This week I helped you out in your notes. I still have a very, very long summary sentences, but I put in most of it for you. So all you have to write down is the part that's underlined. But this is what it says, and I want us to kind of follow in that same train of thought. Although God created worshipers in his image for his glory and praise, here's the problem. Man willingly exchanged God's glory to worship and serve worthless substitutes. This is the tragedy of the universe, and this is where we read this. We read about this exchange in Romans 1. So if it ended just there, worthless substitutes, then that's the worst news ever, right? But we're here today because we've been changed by the gospel. In Romans 3.23, Adam jokingly says a lot of times in our middle school that it's the biggest but in the Bible because it talks about we are all held accountable before God. No man can open his mouth. No one has any say in anything, but Jesus came. Jesus is our righteousness. So I also put in a big conjunction. However, in the gospel, God recreates believers in the image of Christ for his glory and enables us to offer acceptable worship from a renewed heart in spirit and in truth. So there is just so much there. It is so hard to try to get that down into one sentence. So I just gave up, made two. So that's where we are today. In the gospel, the problem, tragedy of the universe is that we're created as worshipers for God's glory, but the tragedy is that we all exchanged it willingly to serve created things. But in the gospel, God recreates us in the image of Christ and enables us to offer acceptable worship again. Not only does he in the gospel reconcile us to a right relationship with God, but we're able to naturally outpour to God in an acceptable way. So last week, as we were looking through stuff as well, we talked about God. This isn't in your notes, but we last week it was saying God is worthy and we should praise him. We talked about the literal English rendering of the word worship is worthship. So it's the idea of attributing worth to something or someone giving honor. So we recognize also that this happens all the time. You do not have to worship God. You could worship anything. Anything that you have in your life that you attribute worth to doesn't mean that you can't love things, but it means that when you attribute worth, and that's the thing that's in that place in your soul, that is worship. We read a quote by a guy named Harold Best in a book called Unceasing Worship. And basically what he was saying is this, all humans are created with a capacity to worship because we were created as worshipers. What he was saying in that quote is, we're not created to worship. 
Because if you say that, it makes it seem like, man, God's in heaven and he's bored. Or he's desperately in need of worship. So he looks around and says, what do I got to do? I got to create people whose main goal is to worship me because I need it. And he said, no, 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 no. You know, we, we recognize that in scripture. God doesn't need anything. He also said it's incorrect to say that we're created for worship because to say created for worship, that kind of divvies up worship in its own little category. And you can kind of say, well, I'm I'm not really good at living for worship, but I'm all of this other stuff. He says, no, it's strategically important to say that we were created as worshipers, whether you know it or not, you're always continually outpouring to something. Always. We looked at the definition, John Piper. Worship is a way of gladly reflecting. This is kind of the the idea we have. Back to God, the radiance of his worth. You'll start seeing these things. These things will start, you'll start noticing them. Clyde Cranford, worship in the presence of God is a spontaneous bowing of both knee and heart, as we'll see today, an exquisite delight. And our implication last week is when we place our highest joy in God, and place our faith in his promises, like Abraham. We join creation in displaying his beauty and declaring his worth to the world. Think about it. That's what Abraham did. He said, look, you're in your own idol-worshiping idol community. I've just appeared to you. I've given you promises. And Abraham, the next word in verse 4 says, so Abraham went. I mean, we talked about, imagine what that's like. God appears to you, says, leave everything that you know. I have promises. Obviously, something worked in Abraham's heart where he recognized Yahweh God who's appeared to me is worth more than the gods that I'm serving. His promises are worth more than what I'm leaving behind. And he naturally responded in worship. I wanted to read to you a, uh, a quote here that Alex actually found uh, this week. And he said, hey, this kind of sounded like some stuff that we were talking about. And I was like, wow, that's going to be perfect for what we're talking about. This is a quote from Matt Chandler. And this kind of goes along the idea that all of us are created as worshipers and it naturally happens. Listen to this. It says, surely anyone can see that our worship switch is always set to on. And we're tuned to some ridiculously finite broadcast. Grown men paint their bodies and surf an incalculable number of websites to follow a sports team. Significant emotional energy poured into the physical abilities of children in games. Go to any concert and you'll see people lifting their hands spontaneously and clapping and closing their eyes and be spiritually moved by music. People fish or hike to be in tune with nature. We put posters on our walls, stickers on our cars, ink under our skin, and drugs into our system. We do all of these things and others like them, pouring ourselves automatically and quite naturally into what is decaying. We want to worship something. Worship is an innate response. We are wired for it by God. You kind of hear some of the things that sound familiar to what we're talking about? Our worship switch is always set to on. That's a great way to say it. We're always pouring ourselves off to something. Before he goes into that quote, he talks about the rest of the world is in a state of disarray and war and famine and, and hardships and reality. And you come to America and you turn on the TV and people are interested about who's famous and who's dating who and and what sports stats are new. And not, not that those things are bad, but you could see that our focus has shifted as a culture. And that is what we're called to live as lights in the midst of. We saw that Abraham ultimately was faithful to worship God in response 
to what he was given. So before I move on, I want to kind of give you just a basic uh, timeline here of where we are in the, um, of the kind of the history of redemption. Uh, I don't write as neat as Adam, so you'll have to forgive me. Okay, so when we're talking about understanding worship, I want to just kind of give you a very brief overview of, since this is a topical uh, message on, on worship, it's kind, of, it's kind of necessary to see what the whole Bible has to say about it in some regards to, be, to best be able to understand it. So in the very beginning, we talked about Cain, this thing is not going to work, Cain and Abel. We talked about they were the first that showed that they were bringing a sacrifice to God. They were bringing something naturally and spontaneously. But Cain's wasn't unacceptable because it was the wrong thing. A lot of people tell you, well, he wasn't supposed to bring fruit and vegetables, and that's wrong. We actually see in the law later on that you could bring that. What God showed us, though, was that Cain's heart was wrong, and Abel's heart was right. Remember, Adam taught us about this, and he even said, remember, in the story, everybody looks at Abel like he's the good guy. But he's bringing a sin offering. He's bringing what later the law says to bring when you've done something wretched. So maybe Abel wasn't a great guy at all. Maybe he recognized his need for God. And he brought that sacrifice with a, with a pure heart, a contrite heart, one that was broken. Cain didn't. And it was unacceptable. Okay? That's the first evidence that we have there. The second thing that we start seeing, we noticed last week, is we started realizing that there's something that Adam's already said. Is that Seth's line began to call upon the name of the Lord. And we talked about how there was a statement that that's said where it says they make proclamations of Yahweh by name. So why that's helpful is that in a, in a generation where everybody else is worshiping all other kinds of gods, people in Seth's family said, no, 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 we're going to call on the name of the Lord. Yahweh will make proclamations of his character and his traits by name. Then we see Noah. Noah builds an ark. In response to faith, that God said that something was coming, it obviously came. He was saved, not because he was righteous in and of itself, but God showed him favor. And when it did, what was the very first thing he did after he got off the ark? We noticed that he built an altar. He built an altar and he sacrificed to God. Maybe in some ways, like consistent with the law that would tell us later, he's doing that to seek atonement for his own sins. But in some ways, it's definitely a response of gratitude and thankfulness because he's just seen the, the monstrosity of destruction that's covered the face of the earth, and he's escaped by God's grace. Four, we're here at Abraham. I'm sorry, not yet. Tower. Tower of Babel. What's the problem here? Why did God eventually have to disperse these people? What were they doing? Do you remember? Yeah, obviously disobeying God's commands ultimately. And then two, in that, they were trying to say, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower. Let's reach up high. Let's be a mighty people. And basically God shows us, as we examined last week, that if all creation is made for his glory and people try to take that glory for themselves, that's, that's, a, that's no can do, right? So God says, no, 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 I, w- I won't share my glory with anybody. Scripture says he's jealous, but it's not the same type of jealousy that we have when we see something that somebody has and we're like, what are they doing? This is a right jealousy like a husband has for a wife. It's his wife. And someone's coming in on this relationship to mess it up. That's like a righteous jealousy. This is his glory. And people are messing it up. Five, Abraham's call. 
Abraham obviously uh, builds an altar and responds in faith. We see that ultimately, eventually, he continues to bring sacrifices. And then we know the big story in Abraham's life. He's called to bring the ultimate sacrifice, which was his own son. And when he brought his son, we kind of see that God's purpose in all of that wasn't actually to ever harm the boy. It was actually to show that Abraham was to offer the biggest sacrifice on the altar, and that was himself. That was his own plan, his own will. So we go on from here. We talk about, I'm not going to even take the time really to write all this out so we can continue on. But we've got Isaac and Jacob, the forefathers that follow after him. They worship Yahweh, even though they make mistakes. Eventually, Joseph, they lead us to Egypt. Egypt is where the people of God continue to grow in number, but they're being oppressed. And then who rescues them out of Egypt? Well, God does, but through Moses, yes. So Egypt and Moses. And then Moses is a very, very, very important figure. Moses is the guy that basically is the recipient of God's law at Mount Sinai. Well, Mount Sinai, we read passages about that last week where God's glory is seen. God's glory is seen. Moses says, show me your glory. He says, you can't, you can't see it, you'd die, but I'll show you the afterglow. And even Moses' face was glowing, but he gave him a law. And in that law, that's where we start to see that worship is prescribed in detail. If you want to worship God, if you want to be a light in the midst of the dark world that you're wandering in, as I'm creating this nation, you need to follow my commands. So that's Moses. Eventually, we lead to this. I'm going to kind of do this. There's a lot. There's thousands of years in here. Uh, You'll just have to forgive me. But I'm going to stop right there and look at Tabernacle. There's a, a neat app here that we use at school. It's called Glow Bible. Um, Glow Bible is a very interesting thing that has lots of different pictures and virtual uh, tours and stuff. But I wanted to show you just kind of an image of the tabernacle. When we talk about the tabernacle being set up here, after worship was prescribed in the Old Testament law, they are expected to do it. And this is the center of Jewish worship for so many years. This is all of these things that are in here are actually going to be shadows and types and figures of what Christ would ultimately accomplish. Let's see if we can uh, get in here just to kind of give you an idea. I think there's a way. Yeah, so you kind of get this idea. We don't know if it exactly looks like this, but people kind of rendered images based off of what we know. And we can see that there was a lot of intentional aspects going into how even the, the curtains was made, how, were made, the altars were made. Everything was done in excellence for the purpose of glorifying God through worshiping him according to the Levitical law. Eventually, this would lead to uh, this guy right here, which is the, the temple around the time of Jesus. So Solomon obviously builds a more permanent temple once they get into the promised land. But then eventually the temple is made by Herod here and worship is happening in these centers for Jewish life. But what's the problem when Jesus comes? Does he does he find people that are worshiping him rightly or not so good? Not so good. I mean, he says, hey, these people honor me with their lips. But what's the problem? Their heart are far from me. So that kind of gives you just a an, a picture there. But you can you can go get Glow Bible. And if you got 40 bucks, you can buy it. I have the free version, so it won't let me go inside that temple. But uh, so what I want to talk about here and make sure I get my stuff here. 
That's just a quick timeline that I wanted us to have as an understanding that when we, we're here, Abraham's responding to God's revelation, but eventually God's revelation gets very specific. And it's very specific in the Levitical way. This is how you worship God. There's a lot of ceremonies. There's a lot of rituals. There's a lot of feasts. Everything seems so detailed and so burdensome. But in some ways, all of it is pointing, well, not in some ways, always, all of it is pointing to what Jesus would do and accomplish for us. Not only would he come and fulfill the law, but he would come and worship perfectly. But in the midst of all this, I mean, there's, there's a whole kingdom that's set up. David is actually, I mean, King Saul was the first king, but we know that his heart wasn't right before God. So God was seeking a guy after his own heart. That's David. We get Psalms. We see in the book of Psalms what real worship kind of seems to be like, an expression, a natural adoration of God. But in the midst of all this, people keep messing up, right? Because something's broken. Something's wrong. There's tons of, uh, tons of times there where God allows them to fall into different cycles and then would rescue them again. But in all of this, I want to read this from Deuteronomy because we recognize that this is the pattern that came. But it was foreseen before Moses ever let them go into the promised land. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 6. If you have your Bible, you could look there if you want, but you don't have to. Deuteronomy 6. He's basically saying something like this, and I'm not reading yet, but he's wrote this down in my notes. As you guys go and journey and set up new life as God's people, Recognize your call to glorify your God to the world by carefully observing his commands. Don't get entangled in the ways or customs of those around you since they will all lead your heart away from the living God. And never forget acceptable worship is ultimately a matter of the heart. Now, obviously, that's my interpretation of basically taking the whole of Deuteronomy and seeing what Moses is trying to urge these people. I can't go in there with you. Okay, you're going to have to go without me, but don't forget God. This is what he actually says in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So you don't really recognize that worship is so heart-centered until you start looking for it, and then you recognize it's everywhere. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house. He goes all the way down. Basically, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all these good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Sounded pretty clear. Did they listen? No. But I'm not going to judge them, right? Because how, how many times am I told to do something and I don't listen? Very often. But it's so sad. That's the tragedy of it. Don't forget God in your hearts. Put this command in your hearts because these people will lead away your heart. And then ultimately, once your heart's gone, once the root is bad, all the fruit is bad with it. Okay. So in summary, in the Old Testament system, basically, 
when I look through it as a whole, I see that if I want to define acceptable worship, this is kind of what acceptable worship is. It's when God's people naturally and spontaneously respond to God, but in the right form, according to his way, and with the right attitude. Those things are really, really important, and all of those things come over into the New Testament. However, unacceptable worship can be seen very clearly as well. So this is where we pick up in your notes. We're going to talk about what unacceptable worship looked like and continues to look like, and hopefully uh, be able to see what, how and we can offer acceptable worship to God as well. So the very first thing in your notes, it is unacceptable, God says in his law, to worship false gods. Unacceptable. So what's another word for this? Idolatry. Yes, idolatry. And we say, oh, idolatry, that's that problem that everybody used to have where they carved out these images and these stones and they would bow down to them. We're good, especially in America, because if anybody was doing that, they would look silly, right? So we don't do that anymore. But like that Matt Chandler quote, if, it's a, if, if idolatry is a matter of the heart, then we start to see, wow, anything that kind of takes God's place in some ways is an idol. But this is definitely true of what God was telling his people. Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says this. Has a nation changed its gods? God's talking. Even though they are no gods? Basically, are you saying that you've changed and are worshiping another god? Hello, by the way, there are not anymore. I'm the only one. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. He's saying, yeah, creation, be, let your mouth stand open at this great tragedy and treason. Is that people look to God and they exchange God's glory to worship something different. So he knows that. The very first law he gives Moses, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. In that verse right there in the law, it says you shall not bow down to them or serve them. There are two Hebrew words there, and I don't even know them, so I'm not even try to say them. Bow down and serve. Those are the two words that are used for worship in the Old Testament. When the Old Testament is translated into Greek, uh, when the New Testament is translated later on, and they're using the same Hebrew, they use the same two words over here, but they call them differently because now it's in Greek, and we're going to get to that. But these two words, always, there's two different ones. Bow down, physically paying homage, and the other one is to serve. This is a verse where both of them are seen. So there are passages where, Hey, you shouldn't serve other gods or you should never bow down to other gods. This one, God says in the very beginning of the law, both whatever word you want to do, you don't do that to anyone but me because I'm a creator. I'm the one you, I created you and you're looking at this painting. I mean, that's like, oh, wow, this painting is so nice. And the painter's standing right there and it's like, I just love this painting. It's so beautiful and awesome. I just love it. And man. I, this painting, man, I'm going to serve this God and bow down to it. It's like, what? I, the painter's standing right there being like, I, it's a painting that I created. What are you doing? 
You see what I'm saying? I, I just thought of that. That might be weird. Anyways, uh, here's four things about idolatry. One, idolatry is hated by God. This, there is a blank space. There's not a lot of blank. But I'm basically going to give you four so you can space it out accordingly. Idolatry is hated by God. Again, in Deuteronomy, he says, It's the Lord your God you shall fear, and him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, lest his anger be kindled against you and he destroy you off the face of the earth. Idolatry is hated by God not only because it makes a tragedy of his created order for us to try to give his glory to something else, but like all other sin, it is treasonous. A lot of people believe that sin is trivial, right? But it's treason. Worshiping something else is treasonous. This glory, people not giving glory to God is why the Tower of Babel was dispersed. If you know and remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar, He basically stands out and says, look at this empire that I created. I am so mighty. And God says, on your knees, basically, like an animal. And he roamed like a wild animal in the wilderness. God says, it's unacceptable for you to take that glory. Ultimately, the New Testament also says that King Herod uh, did not give glory to God. And an angel struck him down and he was eaten by worms. I don't quite know what that means. But the, the heart behind it is that he did not give glory to God. Uh, this is hated by God in any form, by the way, whether it's carved, whether it's a possession or a person, we can see that idolatry, the heart behind it can still be present in our lives today. But here's something that God says that's really crazy. When these people would bow down and worship these idols and call them Molech or call them whatever they would call them, it is ultimately, secondly, demon worship. So it's not that these guys necessarily just created a God that they just made up. Some of us do. But maybe they were moved or appeared to by demons. Whatever it is, they start worshiping not God. And they're actually not worshiping gods at all. They're worshiping demons. Deuteronomy uh, 32, 16 says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, the gods they had never known. So idolatry is hated by God. It is ultimately demon worship. But here's the scary thing that we need to kind of take our time to look at today. It starts in the mind and in the heart. Idolatry starts in the mind and the heart. This is where Romans 1, the great tragedy, is unveiled. For although they knew not God, or they knew God, They did not honor him, which is very similar to glorifying. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But what happened? They became futile in their where? Thinking. And then their foolish hearts were darkened. And then it goes on to talk about all the different sins, that bad fruit that are starting to be evident when people became futile in their thinking. This literal rendering of this verse here when it says they became uh, wait, exchanged. Yeah, they exchanged the glory of God. Remember last week I said the literal, literal rendering is they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for a likeness of an image of a corruptible man. So they basically took man, who's the image of God but fallen and broken, and they say, okay, now I want to make an, take another image of God, which is wood or stone. And I want to carve that into the image of a man or a beast or something, which itself has fallen. 
So basically, I want to exchange God for a copy of a copy of a copy. And that's unacceptable. We can see that God hates that, ultimately because it is wrong for us as well. Idolatry is not when we knowingly just substitute a God to worship something else or bow down to a carved image. It occurs when we create a God in our minds. Listen to this uh, quote from A.W. Tozer. This comes from the book called Knowledge of the Holy. One of those books you have to read a paragraph two or three times to kind of really understand what's going on. But this, I think, is pretty clear. He says this, let us beware. Lest in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. Listen to this. It says, wrong ideas about God are not only the fountain from which the polluted waters of idolatry flow. They are themselves idolatrous. The idolater simply imagines things about God and acts as if they were true. So you might say, well, I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't worship idols. I don't bow down to carved images. But you talk to people like this in your workplace all the time where God is okay with the way that I'm living. The God that I, or I wouldn't serve a God like that. You hear that often a lot as well, especially when it comes to sin. Oh, the God that I serve is love. It's like, great. The God that you serve isn't God, Yahweh, in the, in, in, as revealed in the Bible. You may be guilty of creating an image of God in your mind and calling him by the same name, but we've got to make sure that we know him. Because if we don't know him, maybe we're worshiping something we've created. And if we're worshiping something we've created, Guess what we're doing from the heart, even if we're not doing it in a physically carved out thing. It's idolatry. So as we see that it's already potentially has a, has a big presence in our life. Here's where Paul kind of even rubs it in more. and says, actually, it's everywhere because he says idolatry's root is covetousness. This is what he says in Colossians three. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness which is what idolatry you're like what covetousness on account of these the wrath of god is coming have have any of us ever been guilty of coveting something yeah he says hey look he didn't even say it's like idolatry he says covetousness is what is idolatry and i think that paul understands like i'm beginning to understand that all these things stem from the heart attitude so if we covet something and we really, really want it, that in itself is idolatrous. Because ultimately, people are never forced, right, to bow down to a, an idol or carved image. They create it and say, this God is the, is the fertility God. Or this God is the God that brings uh, fruit from my crops. Ultimately, they bow down to it for what? Something that they can get out of it. Something that they can receive. It's ultimately the heart attitude behind even bowing down to a physical idol is covetousness. So heart condition of idolatry is the same, regardless if we're bowing down to some object or not. Think about that. What do you desire most in your life? This should make us pause. What, what do you desire most in your life? What is your life driving you towards? 
There's something on the back of your notes I don't want you to look at now, but later there's an article uh, on Desiring God that said 12 ways to discern whether or not your desire is becoming covetousness, which would be idolatry. Take a test. Take the things that you value in your life. For me, even woodworking, like I've been doing a lot of it this summer. The time that I spend doing that. Let me, instead of just saying, I'm, God doesn't want me to do things that I like. That's not it at all. He's created all things for us to enjoy and give him glory through it. But there's like a little test that's like, wait, if this is becoming such a valuable place in my heart that if the loss of it causes me to go into some deep depression, maybe I've substituted God's place in my heart and put woodworking there. Or maybe it's uh, social media or, you know, it could be anything, right? So there's a test on there for you to go through on your own. But ultimately, we must recognize it starts in the mind and works itself out through our pride and our own evil desires. That's why Romans 1, they became futile in their thinking. They gave up God. They became darkened in their heart. And then they started doing whatever they wanted to do in approving of others that did them. And that is why the whole world stands accountable to God for breaking his law. This all sounds like bad news. The good news is coming, I promise. The next ones we're not going to spend a lot of time on. I just want to note, it's unacceptable also, number two, to worship the true God in the wrong form. So, okay, we don't have the wrong God. We've got the right God. We've got Yahweh. but We're going to worship him. We're going to create, very similar to idolatry, create him an image. This is something like we could be potentially guilty of doing in our mind as well. Exodus 32, I'm just going to mention it. You can look it up later. That's where they were building a golden calf and worshiping it, right? For a long time, I believe they were creating an idol to worship it because they were used to worshiping cow gods in Egypt. So that's what they just did. But listen to what it says. It says, God says, go down. Your people you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what they were doing is they were saying, we know the God, I mean, his glory, we see he's on the mountain with Moses, but that God who doesn't have a form that we can't see, he must be like this golden cow. And so now we're going to worship it. It's like, no, 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 it's unacceptable to worship God in a form that you come up with. Also, uh, the other one that you could look up there, he says, be careful since you saw no form on that day the Lord spoke to you to not make any type of image. God is spirit. We'll see Jesus says that as well. Number three, it's unacceptable to worship true God with the wrong attitude. We see this with Cain and Abel at the very beginning. It's repeated all the time. In fact, in those verses that I've listed for you in your notes, they're very long passages. You can go look basically at them again. But they they say in essence, God's like, look, you can bring your sacrifices and you can leave them at the door because I don't want them. I'm tired of you coming and bringing fake worship. I'm tired of you coming and bringing sacrifices and just going through the rituals and not having a heart that serves me. He says, I don't want them. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or of goats. When you come before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, is what he says. If your heart's not in it, just leave it. Unacceptable. Lastly here, unacceptable to worship the true God in, the, in any way that we decide is best. And what I mean by this is this 
Sometimes people have the right God, but then they say, well, I'll do it this way. He's, he's prescribed it this way, but I think I can worship God in my own way. And that's the famous story that most of you should know in Leviticus 10, where sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offer unauthorized fire before the Lord. We don't know what that is. They came in and they did things not according to God's way. And what happened? Died on the spot. Because God's glory is important. We don't make a mockery of it. But then here's something really encouraging. Encouraging for me as well. Samuel comes to Saul. King Saul, remember, he's not the guy after God's own heart. He does a lot of bad things in his own way and thinks, I'll just worship God according to the way that I think is best. And Samuel basically comes up to him at this other point when he does not obey his commands. And he says in 1 Samuel 15, Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Remember, we just covered idolatry, and you're like, well, I'm, I'm good. I'm not really an idolater. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not being obedient to God's clear command is just as bad. So I know we've covered a lot. I know that's uh, kind of the, the bad news of it, and I don't want to focus on that. But what I do want to do is really quickly lead you to John chapter 4. And we'll wrap up uh, with this. We're on the downhill here. But John chapter 4 is very important because in our timeline, what I want you to see here, even though there's nine, there's thousands of years here, thousands of years, especially from tabernacle worship on. Worship is the center of Jewish life. Jews are, are, they find pride in themselves knowing that they worship the true God. They've been given his commands. They do things according to his way. And by the time it gets down here, after the temple, then the Babylonian captivity, there's 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence. And the last thing that we hear in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament is God's like, your priests are filthy. They're doing things that are not authorized. I'm done with this. But then he adds this little glimpse of hope in the end. But wait, there's coming a day. Remember, like I promised it all the way back here at the beginning, there's coming a day when I'll set things right. And so then... Now we come to the New Testament, and you have Jesus. And he shows up on the spot. After thousands of years of people waiting for a Messiah to come rescue them from sin, and after thousands of years of worshiping him according to the way that he prescribed, very specifically and very detailed, Jesus gets together 12 fishermen, goes to the land of Canaan, talks to a woman, which isn't really acceptable, especially because she's a Samaritan, and he says something. So thousands of years of culmination about worship lead up to one place in, in, in Jesus's ministry. And it's a random lady in a desert. And he talks to her and he says, hey, I'm just here trying to get some water. You know, by the way, I offer living water, water that if you taste and see it, you'll never be thirsty again. And she, like most of us, are very earthly minded saying, well, where's your spoon or where's your bucket? How are you drawing this out? I want some of this water. That way I don't have to come back to the well anymore. And Jesus is like, if, if you taste, you'd never be thirsty again. Go get your husband. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know. You've had five husbands. In fact, I know you. I created you. I understand you. I know you're searching for meaning. I know you're searching for satisfaction. And you're caught in this cycle. We're talking about living water here. The Messiah, after thousands of years, is now sitting in front of you. And I'm on a mission for your heart. 
And then she says, oh, you want to talk religious stuff? I see you're a prophet. Then let's talk about worship because the Samaritans and the Jews disagree about where we should worship. So you say you should worship in Jerusalem where the temple is. And we should we say we should worship on Mount Gerizim where we believe that Abraham uh, put Isaac on the altar. Got this. Where do you, what do you think? How many people do we encounter this? You start getting at the heart condition. They're like, hey, let's talk about why does God let babies die? And you're like, what? That's just so unfair. Like we're talking about you. And that's what Jesus was doing. But he doesn't say that. He goes right along with it. And this is what he says in John chapter four. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say in that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. If Jesus was just a Jewish man, he would say, you got that right. The center of Jewish worship is in Jerusalem. You're wrong. This is what he says. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, lady, and it's already here. When true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth, for the father is seeking such people to worship him. Thousands of years of worship being done according to God's way. What gives Jesus the authority to walk up to some Samaritan woman and change it all? He says, no, you don't have to go to the the temple. The hour's already here. Jesus has authority because he's always understood worship to be about the heart. He's always understood that it's not about a location. It's about what proceeds from the heart, but it's also because he's going to completely fulfill the law where you don't have to go. You don't have to be divided by a giant curtain that hangs between the holy of holies of God's presence and the rest of man. That's why when Jesus died, guess what happened to the curtain? It ripped in two because worship is now something that we can offer to God as individuals, as a community to him in spirit and in truth. And spirit is to be understood as something that proceeds from the heart in a spiritual manner. It's opposite of worshiping in mere external ways. And truth means that we must worship God in the truth of what he's revealed. It means that we're true about ourselves too. God, we're coming to you. We're not going to be hypocrites here. We're going to be honest. We're coming to you in truth. But we're also coming to you in truth. We're coming to you recognizing that we worship Yahweh as revealed in the Bible and not some God we've created in our minds. Jesus redefines worship here. He redefines it. And if you don't believe me, I found this uh, very, very uh, interesting. And I just want to show you it's. um, This is a picture. Oh, wow. That's the podium. Okay, this is a picture here of a concordance. I'm going to zoom in here. Um, A concordance is basically every single time a word is particularly used in Scripture, it records it for you. So this is an NIV concordance. Um, They have ones for different translations. Look up the word worship. Remember, there's two in the Old Testament. And when the Old Testament or when the New Testament is translated into Hebrew, Septuagint, it uses, it translates, I'm sorry, when they translate it into Greek, that's right. It's the Septuagint. They use these Greek words and it's the same ones. So bow down and serve. This up here in Matthew through John, you can look on the left. Those are the gospels. You see the number off to the right. It's four, six, eight, six. That's basically just a strong number to let you know that it's referring to the word worship or bowing down. So a lot of times in the gospel, people bow down to Jesus. They worship Jesus. 
down here in Revelation. 4, 6, 8, 6. One day when Jesus, when we're in front of him again, guess what? We're bowing down in front of him again. We worship God in that way. But look what happens in the New Testament, though. In between Acts and Hebrews, there's all kinds of different numbers. And those are all kinds of different words that, that, that show that when really, literally, after the book of John here, I mean, bowing down is seen. You can see 4, 6, 8, 6 is in 1 Corinthians 14 when it talks about an unbeliever coming into the presence of the church worshiping. He will himself fall down and worship God. But for the most part, Jesus really did redefine it. Worship isn't something that's mere external anymore. It's how we serve God with our lives. And if you didn't believe it, you could even look at the way they use the word. Because if you read the New Testament, you see worship everywhere. But actually, the words behind the English show that things are a little bit different. But guess what? This is the culmination of everything. We're all heading towards where we will get to bow down before Christ again. That is where we're all moving towards. And that's what's happening in Revelation. That's just something to give you an idea there. So as we're wrapping up here, there's a big white space. I want you to basically just write as little as you need to. I put all of the verses on there for you so that you could look them up in your own time. But we're talking about, well, then what in the world is acceptable worship in the New Testament? If Jesus completely fulfilled the law, then how can we acceptably worship God? Now, remember, when Noah got off the ark, he built an altar and it said the aroma of the sacrifice rose up to heaven. It was pleasing. It was a pleasing aroma to God. And what we see in the New Testament is that Paul doesn't typically use worship word, bow down. This is what you should do, Christians. He uses other things that sound very worshipful, but it's not quite the same. Number one way we can, they're not in any particular order, is we can walk with the Lord in faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. So anything not done in faith is in vain. Okay, But there's a whole chapter of heroes of the faith, and it said in everything they did. Because of their faith, we're able to please God. Number two, offering praise to God with our lips is acceptable form of worship. This is the dominating expression in the Bible. Because when God, when people see God's glory, they naturally respond with praise on their lips. So you could just say offering praise to God. That's in song. That's in that's in prayers. That's in confession. This is the dominating expression. This is what Hebrews 13, 15 says. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice to God of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So after Jesus, it's no longer let's bring animals and sacrifice them. He, Paul says, or the writer of Hebrews says, let's bring a sacrifice to God. And it's this praise on your lips. Next. Offering up our bodies as living sacrifices in Romans 12 is acceptable worship. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice. That's, that's supposed to sound weird. Present your body as a, an alive, dead thing. Because a sacrifice was something that you came to kill. So consider yourself a walking, living, dead-to-yourself individual. That is worship. That is your spiritual worship. Number four, giving our resources to help others is an acceptable form of worship. Paul says, I've received full payment and more, talking about an offering. 
I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Do you hear that same language? This is fragrant. This is pleasing. It smells good. And it's you are giving of your resources. Jesus has opened the door for us to worship acceptably in many different ways. Next, we're going to go real, real quick. Increasing in love and pursuing holiness is to the glory and praise of God, according to Philippians 1. So you could say pursuing holiness, increasing in love, basically living as a Christian. Number six, walking in the light, Ephesians says, is pleasing to the Lord. If we're looking to worship God acceptably, here's, this is our application. As you live your life in obedience to our God, it is worship. Walking in the light. I can post these later. You need them. Seven. Fulfilling our God-given roles in the family. Colossians 3 say, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Because it's pleasing to the Lord. So when you go home and you love your wife the way that God wants you to, that is worship. That is looking at the worth of God and his commands and saying, Obedience is better than sacrifice. And I see that you're worthy. And I desire for your worth to transform my marriage. So I want to treat my wife with respect and honor and love her. Worship. Worship. Praying for leaders, living a peaceful life, First Timothy, is good and pleasing to God. Good and pleasing. Taking care of widows and family members is pleasing in the sight of God. It's all over the place. Taking care of widows and family members is pleasing. Ten, laying aside personal preferences or freedoms. This is what's going on in Romans 14 with the weaker brother, stronger brother passage. Basically, when you when you lay these aside, the language is still the same. It's an acceptable form of worship. It's pleasing. And you guys take these passages and look at them yourself. Don't just take my word for it. Suffering for doing what is right is acceptable worship. When you suffer for doing something that's right, that's pleasing to God. And then lastly, proclaiming the gospel is an acceptable form of worship. Proclaiming the gospel. And remember, Hebrews, the very first one, all of these are supposed to be done in what? Faith. In faith. So here's our prayerful application and then we're done. This is what I was thinking as we look through this. We want to just think small words. This is what I tell my kids at school. I tell my kids because I do this to them all the time. I say, well, you don't have to write that. Fight sin. Strive for holiness. That's connected. Worship in spirit. When you fight sin and you're striving for personal holiness, then what comes out of your heart is what? What is pure? What is there? Jesus talks about what proceeds from the heart. That's what makes man what a man is. So let's fight sin and strive for holiness. Two, let's flee idolatry and pursue an intimate relationship with our triune God, the real God, so that our worship is consistent with what he's revealed. We need to flee idolatry. If you don't think that you're an idolater like I don't typically, then use the test on the back and and examine your life. I've only got two Sundays or I would have devoted an entire one to that one. Okay, and then lastly, let's serve God from the inside out by obeying his word 
and offering spiritual sacrifices. So let's fight sin, strive for personal holiness. That has an endless realm of person, uh, personal application for you and me. I, I have no idea how that applies to you. Flee idolatry. Again, we don't know how that applies to us individually. But I, I'm inviting you to examine that. And then serve God from the inside out by obeying his word. So before we conclude today, this is why I wanted us to end with a time of reflection. There's some things that we need to reflect here. There's some desires in our life, but there's also thanksgiving because we realize the impossible demands of the law have been completed by Jesus to where we can do things like this. We can do things like loving other people and taking care of widows and doing good things, not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but as an acceptable sacrifice of thanksgiving and gratitude to God because of what he's done through Jesus. We can, we can do that. All of this Levitical law, we can't do that. We mess up one, you're guilty of all of it. That's why the whole world is held accountable to God. But Jesus came, fulfilled that perfectly, and says, guess what? I'm not really interested about worshiping in Jerusalem either, lady. Because true worship is in spirit and in truth. So what I want us to do is take some time to reflect. And then I, uh, we're going to have the communion bread and the juice in the back. And I want us to be able to respond in worship, in praise, adoration, thanksgiving for what Jesus has done. Now, we don't, here at our church, just to be clear, we don't teach that you have to be a member here to partake in the Lord's Supper. You do need to be a believer because this is something that is inaugurated, true worship. You can't worship God in spirit and truth if you're an unbeliever. You can't do it. And then and the new covenant promises are inaugurated at the Last Supper. Jesus stands up basically and says, hey, we're doing this Passover meal. And here's the bread that's supposed to signify this bitterness and all this stuff. Guess what? This is my body and it's broken for you. By the way, this cup that we typically do in our ritual Passover meal, this is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant that I'm establishing. New worship is able to be offered now because of what I'm doing when he was saying that in the next couple of days. What I'm going to do even tonight, when people take me away and punish me for your sin, let's do this. And what they do is they take it together and then they stand up and they sing a hymn and they go. And I think that's such a great picture of what worshiping community and response in the Testament looks like. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.